If you've not already done so, I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the little book of Jude, just before the last book of Revelation. We're going to stand as I read for you verses 5 through 7, as we are now progressing along. We're going to uh, engage in this study entitled, The Analogies of Apostates. We begin in Jude chapter, Jude 1, or Jude 5 through 7. That's one of the weirdest things to say, isn't it, when there's no chapter there? Okay, Jude, verse 5. Follow along in your Bibles. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. How is that for a cheery text? As we come to consider this text from the word of God and, and what it has to say to us, let us first keep in mind the pastoral passion of Jude for the church. He is passionate for the fellowship of believers. Jude, if you recall, had an intention to write a letter of encouragement. He was wanted to remind these believers of the blessings and the responsibilities that come from being saved by God. Do you know that being saved by God carries with it responsibility? There is great blessing, but God has expectations upon those who would be so drawn to Christ and converted by him. But Jude was a man of his time. He was a man that was aware of what was going on in the culture around him. He was a, he was a pastor who knew what was going on in the very lives of those to whom he is now writing. And he had seen something take place. He had seen the proliferation and now the infiltration of unbelievers in the church, of those who in verse 3 we read, have turned the grace of God into licentiousness. That is, they have said God is so gracious, God is so loving, God is so forgiving. I can do, I can live however I want. It doesn't matter if it transgresses what God's word says because God is love. And that's the most important thing. Jude had seen such people creep into the church, justifying their sinful behavior. And thus, it says, denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jude, prompted by the Holy Spirit, changes his intention. And he writes now to warn of the dangers of apostasy that's facing the church. There are teachings in the church, he says, that will cause you to fall away from the living God. The enemies of the church were not only from without now, they were from within the church. The church has been invaded by something foreign, something devastating, something creepy, 
A spiritual disease had come in, and it was taking hold like a virulent, vicious cancer, intent on bringing destruction and death to whatever body it could. I recently had some blood work done to see if there was anything wrong with me. I know some of you would say you you needed a blood test for that. We could have told you. Some of you know that I've never been excited about doctors. I don't like needles. And even just thinking about somebody taking my blood makes me, well, think about punching them. I borrow something from my daughter. More than anything else, though, as I went ahead and had this blood test done, I just wanted the doctor to tell me what? You're okay. Everything's good. Blood work looks fine. But if you take the test, there's a possibility they'll tell you something different. And I didn't know about it before, and my thought is if I don't know about it, I mean, right? If If you don't know about it, how can it hurt you? If I don't know, how can it hurt me? Well, I did do the blood test, and I did get the results back, and the doctor said, and I quote, your blood work is boring. (laughs) A couple of minor things, if you eat this or take a few supplements, everything's fine, but your blood work is fine, everything looks good, you're healthy, so quit being a hypochondriac kind of thing. But, you know, just as ridiculous as it is for me not to uh, examine and, and have tests run to see if my physical body is okay, to see if there is any medical attention that is needed, I would submit to you that it's even more dangerous for a church not to be examined. It is dangerous for a church not to test the songs that it sings and the preaching that is preached and the Bible studies that are being led across. We, we need to test them to see if any spiritual attention is needed. I say if, but when we read the words, there was a prophecy given by the Apostle Paul who wrote these words to the elders of a young church in Ephesus. And listen to what Paul wrote to this church concerning uh, these kinds of things. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Look, look at verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Well, now that could sound like it's coming from without. Not sparing the flock. Now look at verse 30. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse, crooked, unorthodox, apostate things to do one thing, to draw away, to cause an apostasy of the disciples after them. Now the Apostle Paul was incredibly prophetic with this statement. He said it wasn't a matter of if, it was when this came to take place. Paul warns of the coming apostasy within the church. And now we read Jude about uh, some 30, 40 years later writing and says, guess what? It's here. It's now. It's within the church. The spiritual blood work had come back and there were some troubling issues to see that needed to be done if the body, the church, was to maintain its gospel witness. 
Dr. Jude, after having been briefly stating his concern in verse 4, now launches into his report. He's stating the danger and the perversity of the apostates, those who by their teaching and conduct have revealed that they've ultimately denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ and will subtly draw even those who are believers into wrong thinking. I want to stop and remind you, as we are about to bash apostates, I want to be careful on two accounts, and one is this, that it is possible for a believer to be drawn away by false teaching. You have to constantly be on guard against it. So you may, for a time, look favorably upon apostate teaching, but if you're truly belonging to the Lord, he will draw you back. And the second thing I want to say as we talk about these apostates is I'm not trying to say that all of you are apostate. Just because we may have some bad thinking at times doesn't make us apostates. We are being warned against falling into any thinking, any teaching that the apostates might give. And so I want to give those two particular looks. What makes all of this so dangerous is that the apostates, though, seek to look like and sound like believers. They use the same words. They will speak to you. If I go to a a Mormon and I say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? What will he say? Yes. The problem is he has defined Jesus Christ in a completely different way than what the Bible actually teaches. And so... If you ask somebody, do you believe in Jesus, or they ask you, do you believe in Jesus, you would say, which Jesus? Because I believe in the Jesus of the Bible, and that might spark an opportunity for you to speak of that. These apostates will speak of Jesus. They'll speak of the doctrines of justification and salvation and sin, and the, the thing is they apply different meanings to the words. They do not worship the Jesus of the Bible, but one made in their own image, one made in their own likeness, one made according to what tickles their own ears. They do not believe in justification by faith alone, but will add human works and human efforts. They do not believe that being saved ought to lead to an intense and increasing holiness, but rather they believe that being saved allows them to live how they want according to their standards. To address this matter, Jude now reminds his readers that the heresies and rebellion of the apostates is nothing new. As we have been saying, there has been a truth war since when? When did the truth war start? You should be able to answer that. It started in Genesis chapter 3 with a a serpent who said, did God really say? In Genesis 3, we we find the truth war beginning, and what was the purpose of the serpent's words? Did God really say to cause Adam and Eve to fall away from the truth, to become what? Apostate. That was the goal. And ever since Genesis 3, there has been this movement to cause people to fall away from the truth, and it's existed in every generation. What Jude reveals to his readers in our verses, verses 5 through 7, is that the danger of uh, failing to believe God has has, uh, has revealed to us, has revealed to us in the word, this danger, there's this danger of misinterpreting and misapplying God's word. All of this leads 
those who teach it, and all who embrace it to eternal damnation. The words are intense. I started off by saying this was not a, a joyful passage to simply read and hear. This did not begin, however, in the church. This has plagued humanity since the first bite of the forbidden fruit. If we asked why Jude is about to go back into history and to reveal this truth, this intention, his intention is to serve as a reminder, a truly sobering and, and on one level terrifying reminder that our enemy, the devil, along with all of his accomplices, both demonic and human, have spent some 6,000 years perfecting the tactics upon which to bring into the church teachings that would draw you away from the living God. He has a lot more, the devil has a lot more practice at it than any one of us in this room. And his mission is to destroy the truth of God, to undermine the gospel. Before we delve into our text, let me make one more comment. The calling out of what is sin, both within a culture as well as within the church, is not looked upon with much favor in our day. To say that somebody is wrong, to say that they are being uh, against the Bible, to say that they are sinning, that is not what the world wants to hear. We are considered archaic, backwards. We are not with the times. Sadly, there are few within the church who seek to walk with the Lord and understand the times in which we live adequately enough to confront the troubling and difficult topics of our day. Many of us would probably confess we'd rather ignore it. We'd rather pretend it doesn't exist. We won't deal with it until it actually begins to affect us. I'm telling you, it is already here. Hearing stories of what's taking place in our public schools here in northwest Arkansas. And what are we doing? Well, we're, we're insulated. We've got this spiritual proof room that keeps us from having any problems, right? The problem is we don't live here 24-7. These rooms aren't going to protect us from everything. All we have is the truth of God. We are to be armed with it. We are to live it. We are to proclaim it. Beloved, it should never be understood that the church is going to be politically correct. When we are evaluated by the culture, we will find that there will be those now from within the church and without the church that will hate what we have to say. If you asked me why it is that there is a rapidly increasing number of those within the church who now reject the fundamental truths of Scripture, I offer you two answers. <coughs> First, the fault lies with an increasing number of pastors who are more concerned with people-pleasing than with God-pleasing. There are too many preachers who are not preachers. They are simply man-pleasers tickling the ears of those who are sitting under their teaching. They are failing to preach God's truth. And so we would lay the problem, it's with the pulpit, right? We would say the men who are in the pulpits, they're the ones to blame. Well, yes, they are. What was Paul's exhortation to Timothy, who was an example to all who would faithfully fulfill the role of the pastor? He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Timothy, preach the word. 
Preach the word. Don't preach your opinion. Don't preach the little stories. Don't preach anything that will not tell them about what God says. Preach the word and be ready at any time, in season and out of season. And then the words that he uses, these are not calm, tame words. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The problem lies in the pulpit, does it not? When when men of God will not preach the word of God to the people of God. But to be fair, there is an equal problem among the congregation. Yes, we need to be praying for bold, strong, godly men who will faithfully proclaim the word. But Paul will go on in this passage to remind Timothy that even with bold biblical preaching... There is a sinful tendency among those within the church. We read this in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4. For the time will come when they, those who are professing to be Christians, will not endure sound teaching, sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. Who's doing it here, folks? Is it the bad preaching? It is the congregation. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will do what they will become apostates they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths weak-minded preachers will preach what a congregation wants to hear not what god intends them to hear Let us pray for God to raise up men who will faithfully proclaim the full counsel of God and not be afraid to address the difficult issues of the day. And then let us pray for God to raise up congregations who will be Berean-like and search the scriptures and see if these things are not so. And if the man in the pulpit is not preaching the word of God, get him out. In our text, Jude offers up for us what I've called three analogies. Three examples, he actually uses the word example in, the, in verse 7. Three examples of how God dealt, has dealt with apostates in the past. You know, the Bible's filled with accounts of what God does to apostates. And Jude's about to tell these readers, the Holy Spirit's about to tell us, if you are not careful, this is what the end will be if you are not certain about your relationship to Jesus Christ. Jude offers up these Examples of how apostates have been dealt with by God in the past, revealing to us both the ongoing problem of apostates, but also the impending doom upon all of those who would fall away from the living God. Beloved, for us, this means that we ought to, in the words of 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself to see if you are in the faith, examine yourselves, and then assuming that you pass the test, that you then take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. You have a responsibility. Jude is about to tell you this this is what will happen if you see people in your congregation begin to fall away. You go after them. You make sure that there's not anyone who is an unbeliever. We have that responsibility. The first test is personal. Test yourself. The second test is to guard and protect the others from evil, unbelieving hearts. Well, with all this background, let's turn our attention to the text and notice three past judgments of God that serve as analogies or illustrations of what awaits apostates. 
he will address three different groups. Apostate Israel first. Then he will talk of apostate angels. And then finally, he will speak of apostate heathens. What is a heathen? We don't use that word very much. What is a heathen? Do you know that most people who are walking uh, in your neighborhood are heathens? What is a heathen? A heathen is simply anyone who does not adhere to the worship of the one true God as revealed in the scripture. You worship anything else. If you worship evolution, if you worship your own self, if you are into new age mysticism, whatever it is, you are a heathen. Each one of these analogies, I believe, will help us see a danger that apostates bring into a congregation and therefore are to be avoided. So let's look at our first analogy, which I've entitled the danger of unbelief. It should stand to reason that there's a danger to unbelief. It's probably the easiest one to understand, right? If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, if you do not follow and obey Jesus Christ, you will die. The soul that sins, Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins will die. In verse 5, Jude writes, Now I desire to remind you, there's something you need to be reminded of, even though you've already been reminded of this, even though you've heard the stories over and over and over again so that you know them once for all, you could tell me these stories like the back of your hand. So Jude's writing to some people that have been familiar with some of these accounts he's about to give. And he says that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So Jude's beginning with a very clear and vivid reference, is he not? He's taking us right to the redemption story itself as found in Exodus. The Passover account along with its subsequent departure of the people out of the land of Egypt not only demonstrates God's love for his people, but it also serves as a stern reminder of God's judgment. We, we see it all simultaneously. God's redeeming love in bringing his people out and God's judgment upon those who would oppress God's people. So God brings his love, but he also brings judgment upon the Egyptians. He also will bring judgment upon those Israelites who will prove that although God had demonstrated his love, demonstrated his power, demonstrated his salvation, demonstrated his presence with the Shekinah glory, there would be an entire generation that did not believe and therefore would do what? Perish in the wilderness. It's an amazing thing that there would be those who saw such amazing things as did those Israelites. But they never responded. They never repented. They never believed. I would have you note that Jude has every expectation then that his readers would be aware of this account. So I hope you are as well. And if you're not, go back and read the book of Exodus and you will see this. He says, though you know all things once for all, that's a reference to this particular account. Jude also expects that his readers would know of God's unchanging attitude towards anyone in any place at any time who rejects or corrupts or does not believe God's revealed word. This is the danger of unbelief. Hence, the Exodus account is used to describe what happens to those who do not believe God's word. As Jude says, and we'll take note of this in just a moment, notice the language he uses. He saves a people out of Egypt, but then subsequently will destroy those who did not believe. 
But before we get to that, I would have you note, Jude marks for us two kinds of people. Do you see them in our text? Two kinds of people. Notice at the beginning of verse 5 that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, He does legitimately save some out of the land of Egypt. There are those who see the Shekinah glory. They they appreciate the the Passover lamb and the blood. They are genuinely saved, those who on the night of the Passover. uh, Interestingly, just to think about this, all of the Israelites that went through the ritual, right, what did they do? They went through the prescribed rituals. They put the blood on the lentils. They they partook of of the... uh, Passover meal. Uh, they would uh, go out into the wilderness. Want, they would go out to the wilderness with the Lord, but the Lord would say they did not believe. How many people come to church and hear the testimonies of those who've given their lives to Christ and followed Him in baptism? They've seen people's prayers answered. They've seen the power of God. They've heard the gospel preached. They've gone through the rituals, but they do not believe. There were those among the children of Israel upon whom God brought under the blood, though. He brought them under, uh, brought them through the water and gathered them into his presence. It was not the repeated judgments of God upon Pharaoh that brought their redemption from the land of Egypt. Such judgments only furthered Pharaoh's uh, uh, hand, hardened Pharaoh's heart, and made him more determined than ever to do what? Not let the God's people go. It would not be the law of Moses that secured salvation for Israel because they would never be able to keep the law that was given. No, those who were truly saved would be saved according to the Passover ritual by the blood of the Lamb. It was the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel and the blood in the basin of the doorstep that saved them when the avenging angel came and spread his wings to devour the land. It was the blood that broke the power of the enemy. It was the shed blood of the lamb that purchased them to be God's possession. Undoubtedly, there were those who truly believed and were saved. Not only were they saved, but they were separated from their previous way of life. Again, let us note that God brought them all through the Red Sea. Believers and unbelievers alike came through and crossed on dry ground and got to the other side. In the words of 1 Corinthians 10, 2, Paul writes that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. What is that Paul saying? All of Israel partook of the blessings of salvation. They all experienced at some level God's goodness They experience God's favor. They were exposed to the wonder of Christ. And yet the scriptures would say they not not all of them. What? Believed. Next, God brought them to Mount Sinai. And taught them that how they were to live as a redeemed people. Not only this, but God descended from heaven and pitched his tent among them. He established an entire sacrificial system filled with laws and ordinances and feasts and fastings that, that were 
taught to them to, to teach them about God and all of these things, all of these rituals, God said, these are types, these are shadows, these are symbols. And rituals intended to point them to who? To Christ, who would come. And some in that congregation believed. But sadly, there were those in the midst of the saved that were not saved. They professed all the right words. They partook of all the same blessings, but their hearts were never changed. They were never regenerate. They were never converted. They never received the blessing of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Beloved, today by faith, if we look back to Calvary, to the work of Christ on the cross as the sufficient and only payment for our sin, then we can be saved. There were those among the children of Israel that, who although had a hazy, vague, in a limited way, they were looking forward by faith to Calvary. Those were the ones who were truly saved. But at the end of verse 5, we find that God, what God does to those who, although they were among the people who were saved, did not believe. And so that's the second kind of people, those who are truly unsaved. Among the truly saved have always been the truly unsaved. Did you know that? In any congregation, there are the saved and the unsaved. And, of course, the preacher and the elders and the leaders, and I pray those who are genuinely saved in the congregation, hope there's more saved in the congregation than unsaved. Jesus reminds us of this in the parable of the wheat and the tares, does he not? That both wheat and the tares, that which is good and that which is bad, grow up together side by side. And when they first come up, you can't even tell the difference. You have to wait until they mature, until the fruit has been exposed. These are the ones taking, partaking of the same sunlight, drinking in the same water. But what they are will not be fully revealed until time has passed. It would be the unsaved who caused the most trouble for Israel. It'd be the unsaved in the midst of Israel who caused the most trouble for Israel. These were those who criticized and complained. The ones who accused and attacked Moses and Aaron. They crowned all of their other sins by refusing, if you remember the account, at Kadesh Barnea. They thus were said uh, not allowed to enter the promised land. Within the congregation of Israel was a mixed multitude then of believer and unbeliever, of saved and unsaved. There were unbelievers who knew nothing about the redemption of the blood of the Passover lamb. The truth of God was made evident to them. They were taught it week after week, but they were blind to it. God had faithfully dealt with his people in their everyday lives, but unbelievers did not recognize it as such. The unbelievers among the ranks of Israel were worldly, they were carnal, they were rebellious, they were self-willed. But the reason Jude brings this account to light is because of the horrendous thing they did as they sought to infect the true people of God with their own rebellion that did not come to light until they arrived at Kadesh Barnea. When they heard the report of the giants, remember there were two spies sent out into the land, Joshua and Caleb, and then Joshua and Caleb come back and it's like, this place is great. They got grapes the size of watermelons. I don't think the grapes were really the size of watermelons. I think the clusters were that big, okay? And, and there's all sorts of good things, a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and by the way, there's some really tall people there. But with God, 
we're going to take this place. Well, they heard the report of the giants in the land, the land that God said you will take, and they cried out in Numbers chapter 14, verses 2 through 3, what that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and little children will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Return to slavery. Return to, to the, the, the lack of trust in God. God had, had, had said, hey, for, for 40 years I've taken care of you. I'll take care of you. Your sandals will not wear out. No, not enough. God's going to let our kids be torn to pieces. Sounds like unbelief to me. Then in Numbers 14, verses 28 through 29, God answers all of their questions. How devastating these words. As I live I'm the living God, says the Lord. Just as you have spoken in my hearing, I hear everything you say, every grumbling you've made, whether audible or in your heart, so I will surely do to you. You're afraid of your, of your wives and your children falling in the dead in the land? Well, guess what? Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upwards, who have grumbled against me. And by the way, grumbling and complaining is unbelief. Oh, how we need to remember that. We need to remind our children, grumbling and complaining is not believing God. Our children need to remind our parents, grumbling and complaining, mom, dad, is unbelief. These had been, these here have been part of the congregation of Israel, but they were now doing what? They were falling away because of unbelief. Let me be clear. They did not believe and now were falling into unbelief. No, they never believed. They had pretended to believe. They partook of the blessings of God that were poured out upon those around them who did believe, but they themselves never believed. And you, I scratch my head, and how can this be so with all the blessings and all the wonders that they saw? And then I remember that how little we think of this word. You know that this that you hold in your hands or you have now on some electronic device is more spectacular than Israel going through the Red Sea because it tells you of that and more. But how often we just kind of take it so glibly. In this account, what happened to such apostates who never believed? Those who professed for a time to believe, but in time revealed they had not. The judgment of God falls upon them. They would die in the wilderness. And this is the lesson Judah's driving home. Be the, the sure and certain judgment that comes upon anyone who rejects, anyone who renounces, anyone who says, I believe, but then does not live according to what they profess. This is what awaits you. You will die. As Israel died in the wilderness, you will die a more horrific death because you will die the second death. Is it any wonder 
Now Jude begins verse 5 then with the statement, now I desire to remind you. This is how important it is that you understand. The verb remind speaks of putting something into the mind. It's uh, Richard Baxter talks about the preacher screwing the truth into the minds of the hearers. And now this is uh, Jude saying, I need to screw this truth down deep into your head. Never forget that rejection of God's word, renunciation of God's word, not living according to God's word. It could lead you down a path that you do not want to go down. So better be certain of your relationship. God's judgment waits upon those who fall away from the truth. So let me ask you pointedly, do you genuinely, with all sincerity of heart, believe Jesus is who he uh, is, has said he is, and what he has done? Simply put, he says he is both Savior and Lord, that he alone saves those who believe from the penalty of sin, eternal death, the power of sin to think and to live in ways contrary to God and his word, and once one day from the very presence of sin when we see him face to face in glorified, immortal, incorruptible, sinless bodies. He is also Lord, meaning that Jesus is not only God, as if that were not enough. God, he's not simply God. He's your owner. He owns you. He's your boss. He's the captain of your soul. We owe him our allegiance. We owe him our love. We owe him our lives. And, and I ask, does this describe your relationship to Jesus Christ? He is my all in all. You could strip me of everything else. Take it all away. I would be discouraged, sure, saddened, yes, but I would know I still have Christ. And if I have Christ, it is all that I need. Because if that does not describe your faith, you do not have faith. Let me ask you another pointed question. You say, well, yeah, that, that sort of describes me. Let me ask you, do others around you see that? Does your spouse, do your children, do other family Members, friends, co-workers truly know that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord. I owe my life because he saved me. I owe him my allegiance because he's my Lord. Do people know that? Do your kids know that? Do your parents know that? Would those who know you be able to say this one? truly knows and communicates the reality of what Christ means to him, what Christ has done for him. This one demonstrates how Christ is changing him. Anything short of this leaves you wondering, right? And sometimes we're going to find ourselves wondering because we're not always going to live the way that we ought to, but sh there should be that desire because anything less leaves you wondering at best and deceived at worst concerning your relationship to Christ, and that's the danger of unbelief. Well, let's look at the, the second one he mentions, the danger of rebellion, verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, God has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So this next analogy points to the fall of Satan and his angels who rebelled against God. These are apostate angels. Jude does not give any details here concerning the specifics of the rebellion. The, this suggests that Jude's original readers would have already known such information. 
But the point Jude makes is to drive home not the specific instance of rebellion of these apostate angels, but the judgment that awaits anyone, any creature that falls away from the living God. And so we find three things about these angels. First, their position. The subject of the verse are these angels. Let me remind you that angels are created beings, created by God who has made all things. As angels, these beings originally had the privilege of being in the very presence of God in heaven. They were continually around the throne. They beheld the glory and the majesty and the splendor of the almighty God who had created them and created all things. They were constantly in an atmosphere of extraordinary worship. According to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, there was a chief or high angel of the order of the cherubim, sometimes referred to as Lucifer. And according to these passages, he filled himself with pride and with greed and desire to assume the place of God. He said, I will ascend to the Most High. I will be the one who is over all. And for such rebellion, God cast Satan as well as the other angels who followed him, according to the book of Revelation, a third of the angels out of heaven. Such angels are now referred to as fallen angels or demons. They had once the privileged position of being in the presence of God, but as we'll come to see, they intentionally turned their position into an opportunity to do their own thing, to go their own way, to go in a direction contrary to the living God. Well, we see their place, not only their position, their place. In our text, Jude does not appear to be speaking of the actual fall of Satan himself, but of another extraordinary, heinous infraction by some of the fallen angels. And we had to, we're speculating here a bit. What is this extraordinary, extraordinary, heinous infraction? It is recorded for us, I believe, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What was the sin there? They left their God-designed position to go to a place they ought not be. They began to come to the earth and sought to take masculine form and cohabitate with the sons of men. Jude gives us two descriptions. You notice it says they did not keep their own domain. The idea here is that God had given them a purpose, a place to function, and they chose a different place, and they had a different domain. We all have domains, right? I mean, what is your chief domain? Mine is at 1711 South 41st Street. It's one of my domains. It's one of the places God has given me to maintain. I can exercise authority in my house. Nobody tells me what music I can listen to. Nobody tells me what foods I can eat. It's my place to do as I see fit. It is my domain. God has given that to me. The word domain speaks then of that rule or realm in which a person or being is to exercise authority. And these angels did not keep, that is, they did not hold fast. They did not guard or watch over what God had given them to do. They rather left their God-appointed place to exercise themselves in a realm into which they were not designed. And that brings us to the second description. They abandoned their proper abode. 
with Satan. These angels rebelled against God and their created role and their place in heaven. And after God expelled them from heaven for this rebellion, some of these fallen angels continued their downward fall to the point of taking masculine form and cohabitating with human women to produce a generation of demon-influenced, though thoroughly corrupt children. You can read of that in Genesis 6, verses 11 through 13. This was their rebellion. What is it? It's an apostasy. It's not what they were created to do. They did not listen to the command of God. They did not obey the voice of God. They fell away from God. And so like the congregation of Israel who had seen and known the power and blessing of God, these angels, even more so, I, I can't even comprehend actually being in the presence of God and saying, I want to be more than what I am. I want to be more than the creator who created me. They had experienced the delights of heaven and the presence of God, yet they chose to rebel. They chose to disregard God and his created order and his decrees. And what was the result of such rebellion? Well, we've seen their, their position, we've seen their place, and now finally we see their punishment. Again, Jude's point is to reveal what happens to you if you continue moving away, falling away from God. These angelic apostates who committed this vile sin against God and his word, God, it says in our text, listen, has kept the same verb as did not keep before, did not hold fast, did not guard, did not watch over. He has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. They should have kept what God had given to them. They did not, so God will show them what it's like to keep something. And I will keep you in eternal punishment forever wrapped in the darkness. You will not see the light of day again. <clears throat> never again. If you think about it, never again. Would anything like the events of Genesis 6 take place on this earth? It has not happened because God said enough. This is the doom of apostates. The do, they're doomed for judgment. And by way of application, how many people today profess to know and embrace the truth of God, yet day by day turn away from it? Beloved, some, uh, some, uh, uh, so much trial arises in the church when people who know the truth fail to submit to the truth, ultimately because they have never truly believed and been transformed by that truth. And what is the truth? Beloved, here is the truth. We are each great sinners. We, are all be, we all begin as unbelievers who deserve God's punishment, yet Jesus is a great Savior who saves to the uttermost all who truly believe on him who all who are transformed and made new by him. And I ask you, do you know Jesus this way? Are you serious in knowing and loving and serving the Lord? You cannot afford to be neutral. You cannot afford to be careless about this. All who rebel against God, all who refuse his salvation, will find that they will be kept in eternal bonds of judgment. Apostates are those who have rejected the mercies of God, and rather embrace their own sinful desires, thus they attempt to corrupt the gospel. Well, we've seen the danger of unbelief and the danger of rebellion. Let us look at our last point, the danger of sexual perversion. Verse 7, 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing what? Here it is again, punishment of eternal fire. Most anyone who has any familiarity with the Bible know of the depravity and perversion of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? This destructive lifestyle continues to bring devastation to this day. Contrary to how many in the church would like us to tone it down, to, to have some kind of moratorium on, on talking about the issues of homosexuality, the account of Genesis 18 through 19, the context is clear. We're not simply talking about an inhospitable people. What makes the people of Sodom and Gomorrah so inhospitable is their sexual perversion and inclination towards homosexual behavior in a public setting. The sin of homosexuality led the, to the downfall of these cities. Sexual perversity and depravity put on display in these places in stark, contract, uh, stark contrast and contradiction to what God has revealed as being proper and righteous. God says, this will be judged. You know what, you know what culture we're living in? We're living in a Sodom and Gomorrah culture, and it will be judged. Remember the context, though, is apostasy. We can use this passage and talk about the falling away into homosexuality, but the, the issue is not falling away into homosexuality. It's falling away from any of the truth of God. This means that these people, however, were very much aware of God's standard. What is that standard? Well, we find it in the book of Genesis, first in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said... Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them, hold on to that, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, repetition, 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 what is this to look like? Male and female, he created them. God's design, God's decree, God's truth, the reality is always only two genders, male and female. Not a whole slew of, of genders in between all of this. We stand on the truth of God, male and female. This is how he has decreed it, that a man and woman together exercise dominion, that is power, rule, and authority over what God has given them. There is no such thing as a homosexual marriage. There is no dominion given to two men living in union together, two women living in union together. It is contrary to the word of God. It is an apostate teaching. We look next at Genesis 2, verses 20 through 25. We read there. The man gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a, a, a helper suitable corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned 
stitched together into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone, bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, stand on this people for this reason. Because of God's design. Because God knows what he's doing. Because God never makes a mistake. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, the woman. And the two shall become one flesh. God created woman for the man, not another man for the man, not another woman for the woman. God does not make mistakes. He does not put men in women's bodies and women in men's bodies. God has not designed or decreed that more than two genders, male and female, should exist. Thus, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the use of sexuality to pervert what God had deemed as good and proper and solely satisfying for his creation. This puts the entire LGBT et al. at odds with God. But just what does Jude tell us about this sin and its punishment? Three things. First, its scope. Notice something interesting. This sin was not confined to Sodom and Gomorrah, was it? Jude says that it was not confined to, the, to Sodom and Gomorrah. Such cities may have been the epicenters of this perversity, but notice that their sin had spread to what? The cities around them. Here lies the magnitude of sexual sin. It, it is never confined to a small area or a singular point. As 1 Corinthians 5, 6 reminds us, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? What seems to be small, what seems to some of us to be private, what seems to be to us simply a matter of consenting adults behind closed doors, which, by the way, is less and less behind closed doors, will spread like wildfire until it has corrupted and consumed everything in its path. We are living in a day when we are seeing a firestorm of sexual perversity sweep across the land, and its intent is to consume everything, including our children. This is the danger of sexual perversion, and it's not limited to homosexuality. It's found in adultery. It's found in premarital sex. It's found in casual sex or any number of perversities I would rather not name. But I want to make one additional comment to this on this related but not explicitly stated by Jude. With, while sexual perversions once engaged will spread, note with me that what took place in Sodom and Gomorrah did, did so a long time ago. When you read of the account in Genesis 18 and 19, we should be struck with the thought that uh, I don't want to be there. I would never take my kids to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is not the vacation spot for my family. But then I stopped to think about this. This took place almost 6,000 years ago. This perversity was already here. I, I grew up at a time when... when uh, uh, when, as a child, we didn't, we didn't hear a lot of the things that we're hearing now. And that sometimes we like to think, well, it's just, it's just getting so bad. No, it's always been bad. There's just been ebbs and flows in it. 
Sometimes it's been more overt and sometimes it's been more covert. But it's always been. It's always been. Solomon and Gomorrah tell us that the depravity of the human heart was bad back in the days and it's bad back in our day, in our day. But let's look not at sin scope now, but also sin sinfulness. Since in the same way as these, they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Jude links what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah as being yet another form of rebellion against God and his word. He says, in the same way, meaning in the same manner of rebellion as the angels that I've just spoken to you about. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah is of equal uh, uh, devastation as what took place amongst the angels. Having known the reality of God's standards, it is important to note that Jude identifies their perversity not simply as immorality. He calls it what? Gross immorality. The adverb gross that's added in our English translation uh, is actually not there in the, in the, uh, in the Greek itself. It's not, there's no adverb. It's built into the verb itself. The verb here is exporneo. It's made up of porneo, where we get our word pornography, meaning to indulge or to partake in immorality. And it has this preposition in front of it, ek, meaning out of. And the idea is that such persons are bubbling over with immorality. It's just bubbling up from within them. It just oozes out of them. And so the translators of the NASB seeking to convey this add the word gross. One translation puts it this way, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner as to these angels of verse 6, having, having given themselves over with a complete abandon to fornication. The idea is that their sin had become so extensive, so pervasive that they could not contain it. The idea of strange flesh is interesting, particularly given in our sexually deviant culture. The word strange means, are you ready for this? It means altered, other, or different. In other words, any pursuit of flesh other than what God has ordained, one man and one woman, any flesh that has been altered, now the prohibition of transgenderism, other than what God has prescribed or different, not even human. You know, there's transhumanism is picking up some kind of pace. I don't know what else you're going to be, but anyway, that's all called gross immorality in this text. This I know, God is good, God is loving, and God has informed us of what is best for humanity. One man married to one woman to the glory of God in, in, in the pursuit of Christ-likeness. Anything other than this is a perversion which will negatively impact not only the couple, but the very culture in which they live. And that brings us to the final thought here of sin's sentence. As it's always been driving home to this, correct? These are exhibited as an example in undergoing the what? The punishment of eternal fire. Every analogy ends with punishment. Beloved, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah over 4,000 years ago, but consider how enduring the knowledge of the punishment against these cities have been. Most people know about Sodom and Gomorrah. According to Jude, the sentence of Sodom's destruction was given as an example of the consequence of sin, of disregarding God and his word, of being what? An apostate who falls away and refuses to submit to God's standards. Beloved, sin will be punished, guaranteed. 
The divine sentence has been decreed. Apostates will undergo, here in verse 7, the punishment of eternal fire. That is the horrific hell of burning fire that lasts forever. Such a punishment is God's final word upon the unregenerate. Those who refuse to believe, those who either reject his truth or def defect from it. It does not matter, beloved, it does not matter if a president makes an executive order or a Congress passes a law or the Supreme Court upholds a law or a culture at large embraces a notion or even churches tolerate and promote what culture is embracing. I tell you this truth. If it is a perversion of what God has said, it is apostate and it will result in the wrath of God revealed. Beloved, our country is experiencing the wrath of God even now. As our nation continues to indulge in those things which God has said is evil and harmful to humanity, he is simply giving this culture over to delve deeper into such sins until such time as God says, enough. While the church sees the return of Christ as positive, knowing that believers will at that time forever be with him when he returns, Christ's return is a devastating and final destruction of any and all who stray from the truth of God as revealed in his word. Let us be careful that we do not subtly, that we do not willfully embrace anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Paul says we're to be destroying such things. Let us pray that we be a holy people, and may I say it this way, that we be a holier people than we have ever known ourselves to be. Let us pray that we would not be man-pleasers, but God-pleasers. Let us pray that our knowledge of Christ and his grace would so increase that we would root out more and more sin in our lives. And let us pray that our witness of the wonders and the glories of Christ and his gospel would so shine in our lives that it would draw others to him. We have been given these analogies of apostates so that we might better identify them and root them out from our midst. And may we do so to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the truth that Jesus came from heaven to earth, that he paid the price for our sins. He died the death that our sins deserved in our place so that if we believe that, and we believe that he rose from the dead, and we believe he's at your right hand, if we believe that his righteousness and faith is ours, that we have the hope of eternal life. And Father, we pray that there not be found in any one of us in this room an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. If there's anyone here, anyone listening, who has even a concern that that might speak of them, I pray that you would motivate them Give them an urgency to speak to someone they know who walks with you and to get their lives right with Jesus Christ. And I pray for the church who does believe. I pray, Father God, that you would enable us by your power, by the power of the gospel that has saved us, to live lives that reflect Christ increasingly, that we might draw people to the hope of eternal life found in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.